0: i would be curious honestly if two people wanted to duel today and they both signed like a full set of legally binding stuff like if that went to the supreme court where would that fall down um depending on on who's there
1: my really cynical answer is that it would depend on how sexual it was perceived to be
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. I'm Sam.
1: And I'm Allison.
0: That's right. We have another guest-starring episode with our good friend Allison, uh, who's here to help us because uh, she's an expert, more or less, on the topic of conversation, which is bioethics. And so there, you know, there's some discussion of what bioethics is, maybe or may not be. There was talk of, you know, snuggling with corpses on a couch and like what level is ethical or not. But we can leave all that to the side and uh, jump right into the thing that people are really wondering. Uh, Sam, what are you drinking right now?
2: I'm drinking right now. Um, it looks like I'm drinking a Moscow Mule. I'm not. It in the Moscow Mule mug. But um, it's actually it's much Better cousin, the Kentucky mule, which is just a Moscow mule, but you use bourbon instead of vodka. So instead of tasting like rubbing alcohol and um, ginger, it tastes like the dirt of Kentucky and ginger. It's that much better. Sound
3: better, yeah, that sounds much. It's better.
2: way, it's way better. I, I, I ordered it. I ordered it four drinks in at a bar one time out of curiosity, and I've never gone back. So
3: never going back to the bar or to Moscow mule.
2: The Moscow mules. Okay. No, I also haven't been back to that bar. He but, can't find uh, it I,
3: again.
0: I, I, you know, I, I, all, all the memories are gone. Yeah, so. uh, and, and also, it's it's probably good not to be uh, supporting the Kremlin in times like these. Uh, mm. But Stephen, mm. what are you drinking right now?
3: I am having a lovely glass of my homebrew uh, honey honey wine. It's uh, well, technically it's a sizer, so it has an apple cider base, and then you just filter out all the particles, and you end up with this lovely golden wine. It's really good. I'm I'm a fan. Not to toot my own horn what, too much. What's the difference between honey wine and mead? Oh, that's what it that that's what it is. The oh, it is, is your mead. Okay. So I I I was wondering beforehand, like when I was gonna bring it up, if I was gonna say honey wine or mead, and the, I chose honey wine because whenever I say mead, people think I say meat, and then I I tell everyone that I have yeah, I'm having a lovely glass of meat, and uh, it just it just sounds weird, and I didn't want to. I've been go brewing this whole
0: thing. meat down in my garage for the past two months.
3: Yeah, yeah, no, like I'll have conversations like that, I'll like oh yeah, I gotta go rack my mead, and people will give me very strange looks, and I want to. Short-circuit that, but uh, thanks thanks for bringing that up, Sam. I'm glad you... Uh, They're probably just concerned about med. the state. What?
1: What if you called it med? Then people just wouldn't know what you're talking about.
3: That That is true. They wouldn't be. And then when I would explain, again, mead, then they would make fun of me for mispronouncing it. So I feel like I really can't yeah, win here.
1: probably
3: not. Yeah. Uh, by calling it honey wine, so... It, except I can't even win doing that!
1: I know, that sounds like a romantic, <laughs> like, Valentine's Day drink. Or something. It really does, actually, yeah. <laughs>
0: Honestly, it's there's probably a niche market there.
3: Oh, Oh, one hundred percent. I have been to a couple of mead bars, mead bars, and um, yeah, no, they're 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 awesome.
0: I'm never gonna not hear meat now, just thanks to you.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Allison, what are you drinking right now?
1: I'm just drinking water out of a normal water bottle
0: with no identifying associations <laughs> or logos <laughs> in a previous cut. Absolutely not. Uh, as for myself, yeah. um, you you know, I I. Uh, uh bringing up the rear with with some uh white pomegranate tea from from Trader Joe's in the one hand and some lemon lime seltzer in the other you know just going just going back and forth the whole time and uh we'll see if we can make it the make it the full hour and a half or so gentlemen and gentlewomen we're here for one reason and one reason alone to ask a very simple set of questions which are why bioethics whither bioethics for whomst Bioethics, whose bioethics and which bioethics? Allison, do you have any insight into that?
1: I'm only, I would only say I'm an expert in bioethics because I have read more about it than probably a lot of people due to uh, being in the process uh, of getting a degree in bioethics and almost finishing it. But I actually think bioethics is something that everyone thinks about. It's the topic of most of the morally polarizing issues in the political scene that aren't about politicians um, as divisive figures necessarily, uh, but that are about topics that have to do with health and medicine and technology and research and how one should treat people uh, within a community or within a society. Uh, all very controversial topics. Um, and that's that's what we study in bioethics. I think people form opinions on them regardless of whether they've studied them because they have such a moral undertone to them. I mean, anyone who's old enough to start having moral opinions on something is, is old enough to have an opinion on bioethics. I don't think you need to know really complex terminology or you need to be super familiar with philosophy uh, or even need to have a really... Uh, in-depth medical understanding, like for example, I don't think only medical doctors are able to uh, coherently engage in bioethics, or even nurses like myself. Um, I think that as long as you're willing to commit to understanding the facts of a particular uh, particular issue, so that you don't misunderstand it and oversimplify it because you didn't un- you didn't understand the facts, then yeah, anyone is qualified to understand bioethics. Which is, I guess, kind of how I got my start because I've thought it was interesting since I was a teenager way before I had any idea what all the various isms and ologies (laughs) meant. Um, There's one article uh, that I ended up doing an undergraduate project on that was on afterbirth abortion, uh, which was written by a couple of Australian bioethicists, Gio Bellini and Minerva. And that article got, International tension as a firestorm. I mean, the U.S. House of Representatives actually passed a bill condemning the article <laughs> because it was—it was so. I mean, it, because it's just how could you, how could you advocate for killing a tiny little baby? You know, it just inflamed everyone's moral outrage. Um, anything that inflames moral outrage, I feel like, is probably under the purview of bioethics, especially if it has anything to do with science and scientific advancement and the question of, okay, we could do this, but should we do this? Ah, the age-old uh, like... question that exactly. gets you all sorts
0: of fun things like nukes, among other things. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> yeah. No, no
1: uh... I actually think... So bioethics traditionally is about medicine and the patient, but I do think there's this burgeoning interest in bioethics as applied to the environment and to political questions. It's not my area of expertise because I'm a nurse, so clinical bioethics is more what I'm familiar with. But yeah, I nukes... I could definitely see an argument for the ecology and so forth being a, a legitimate topic of bioethical study.
0: The 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 anti ecology of nukes uh, kind of just right. ends ends <laughs> ecology proper. No, and 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 you say you know that, that you're that you're only an expert in as far as you've read a lot of things about it. But I mean, that's all most of us can can claim to be. in this podcast is, after all, the problem with reading. So you exactly, know,
1: the problem with reading is that you just keep reading more.
0: Wow, that, no, it's a never-ending I never-ending spiral. Damn it. Okay, new thing is any guests have to say what the problem with with reading is.
3: Ooh, I like that. Because Mm. our our (laughs)
0: traditional answer is that it's hard and, and takes a long time. But I like yours. The problem with reading is that you just keep reading more. That's positive.
1: It's infinite regression.
3: And the problem with reading is that the peasants do it. You know, there are pl- plenty yeah. of problems with
1: it. <laughs> I don't but know. And the women do it too.
3: I think answer. I think Allison
2: yes. proves it better than all of us and actually does it, versus we just complain about it.
1: <laughs> I point. like reading, so yeah, I'm I'm very grateful to have been born in a time when my vision could be corrected because it's terrible. It's I'm super nearsighted and I wouldn't be able to read if I. Didn't have contacts or glasses, so.
0: All right. Well, uh, yeah. No, that that all sounds uh, quite quite excellent. I I I think we've gotten some steps on the way to you know perhaps wither bioethics or or whomst bioethics. Um, I think one thing that you've said you 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 said that bioethics is something that everyone has opinions about, and I think that that's right because the bioethics has to do in many, if not most, of the cases of it. In some way with the body which we all have and we're sort of eminently concerned with with how it works at least in theory um however uh one article that will go in theory we have a body in theory we care about our body
3: oh okay 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 i mean i thought we also isn't the mythology of this that we're all sound waves trapped in a post-apocalyptic something or other
0: yeah that's
2: when you cut that out
3: because it confused everybody
2: and it made no (laughs) one listen to us it was weird (laughs) Thank you listen, for changing it.
0: Listen, this actually, Allison has been sent back in time like a bioethical Terminator to try and turn the path of bioethics <laughs> back towards truth, so that we're not disembodied sound waves in the future.
1: Indeed, I will. I will gladly take up that cause. That sounds very noble.
2: We really That's appreciate it. it. We know you will because you're doing it right now. <laughs> you will have. You will
0: have. You will have saved us. Maybe. Uh, okay. <laughs>
1: this sounds like Latin
0: conjugation. I was just going to say that. Um, Anyway, so short article that we will link in the epi- in the episode description talks about the field of bioethics, uh, a bioethic writer talking about the state of the field and Saurabh Amari in First Things reviewing it. And it takes as its Kickstarter an ad that was tried to be run in France. And the commercial was titled Dear Future Mom, which addressed women pregnant with children diagnosed with Down syndrome. The commercial itself was children with Down syndrome, addressing these prospective mothers saying, dear future mom, don't be afraid. Your child will be able to do many things. He'll be able to hug you. He'll be able to run towards you. He'll be able to speak and tell you that he loves you. Very moving commercial, but it was banned in France. And after years of litigation, it was found on the basis of two complaints from people that this this ad was, was banned and not allowed to be in TV. And the ban was upheld on the grounds that it would disturb the consciousnesses of women who had aborted Down syndrome babies. In France, uh, for the record, I, I believe, uh, with diagnosis of Down syndrome in unborn children has something like a 96% termination rate with other um, countries in, in Europe and, and Iceland uh, sort of notably being similar. Um, and so this book review argues, and, and, and the book being reviewed argues, that the field of bioethics uh, has essentially failed in many ways to account for the body. And this is sort of going to be, I think, our, our big topic of conversation. Uh, I'll quote from the book review. Instead of supplying an ethical program befitting an embodied being, modern bioethics defines the human being fundamentally as an atomized and solitary will, a subjective mental thing that happens to be attached to a fleshly apparatus, end quote. And he goes on to make the argument uh, that there should be changes to to laws and 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 such, but that's less of our concern, except that there are cases, and we'll talk about this a bit later, of where there seems to be sort of a brave new world of uh, euthanasia or medically assisted suicide, as well as other conversations about things like Roe v. Wade in the United States that has brought a lot of these bioethical concerns um, to the forefront. However, concerns about these and about this idea of bioethics being about unembodied being versus being about a atomized and solitary well is, a problem that has been around for some time. I believe David Bentley Hart had a story about that, Stephen.
3: Yeah, he, he does, and it's it's quite a horrifying one. Um, so there's a, a young college student who uh, committed suicide and kind of as folks try to investigate and explore and find out what exactly happened um, that culminated in this tragedy, it was discovered that several of this student's friends actively knew about his intentions to end his life and did nothing to prevent it reasoning that it was his decision to make uh bodily autonomy in essence superseded their friend's life and weirdly enough a bit of a personal anecdote but like this isn't a crazy niche belief um i was talking with an acquaintance of mine at notre dame ethics conference um incidentally he uses one of the most torture readings of Tolkien to justify euthanasia uh and when we were debating yeah so i i was giving him a hard time about this and we were debating this vis-a-vis uh bodily autonomy i brought this story up and asked him if he were in that situation. I think I I think I painted the the situation as follows: where, um, like his friend's on the cliff. He sees his friend hesitate or or what have you, and he knows for a fact that if he dive tackles him, he can drag him off the cliff, even if his friend actively wants to die. And I asked him, like, okay, do you, do you dive tackle him? Do you stop him? And he said he doubled down and said it's his friend's choice. Um, and so like I I and for the record, this guy is actually a like. Despite having ostensibly awful uh, ethical values on this one, he is also a very nice guy, and I I certainly don't want to slander him too much, but... um,
0: Well, he may be a nice guy, but I wouldn't uh, want him next to me when I'm thinking about jumping off a cliff.
1: I would not pick him as part of the nursing team to take care of people that sometimes ask us for that.
3: Yeah, for real. Like, honestly, I mean, it's harsh to say, but he sounds like a horrible friend. Like, at that point, you have become your own worst enemy and it is your friend's duty to keep your enemy, i.e. yourself, from hurting you. Uh, so, yeah, it, it really is kind of this this morally abhorrent uh, philosophy that David Bentley Hart um, uses as a launching par- pad for criticizing, in essence, a universe devoid of transcendent value. Um, and he, he actually links uh, nihil- nihilism with uh, with this kind of... Autonomy as the highest moral good. Oh, also something something. David Foster Wallace talks about uh, freedom from versus freedom to, and that's really important because it's David Foster Wallace. Okay, Allison.
1: <laughs> well, I was going to say, Revenance, I didn't even realize completely that that's what the article was about. I actually am reading that book right now, Sneed's "What It Means to Be Human: The Case for the Body." Hilarious! In <laughs> <mathematics>. <laughs> Look at that. In the first three <laughs> chapters.
3: And, and is it good?
1: Yeah, actually, I I can't, I, w- okay. I would recommend it. Um, but fun I think-
3: facts about Sneed um so uh-huh. he's he's i think the director at notre dame and so he runs the ethics conference i go to every year and he's known as the the scarf guy he always has this like massive <laughs> scarf we all suspect that he actually has no neck uh and it's just scarf after scarf after scarf i mean what 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 month is the ethics conference in uh in november so it is it is november like winter in, in time. indiana yeah that makes sense indoors though i don't wear a scarf indoors the only logical explanation I think for this consistency is he has no neck. It's just scarf after scarf after scarf. Maybe scarf he's I got a that. surgical
1: scar that he's he's self-conscious about or something.
3: Ooh man, I need to be more sensitive about these things.
1: <laughs> I, I just made that up. I don't know. <laughs> um but yeah, that I really do like this book. It's it basically is at its core the um the problem with assuming that someone's will as expressed in like Revan used the phrase disembodied earlier, which is, it sounds nice and scary and zombie-like, and is really kind of how culturally we seem to think of decision-making, that it's it's this decision that takes place with no context. It's not influenced by anyone. It's not biased by anything. Having it take place within the confines of a community or within the limitations of a body makes it somehow suspect. And it needs to be in some ways, it's it's a decision that's trying to be transcendent of everything, but like Stephen said, it ends up in nihilism. That it just ends up in this endless spiral of uh, that. Ultimately, it's kind of a death spiral, a literal death spiral, because it has nothing to ground it or to direct it um, or to to nurture it. Um, and so, Sneed's book is about the kind of radical dependence that we have on each other because of our bodies and how that influences it. And, and I mean, he's this This really starts off with fatherhood and motherhood with his point, um, how children are dependent on their parents. And uh, But it extends all throughout any type of vulnerability, uh, whether you might be injured um, or ill, or if you're older and have started to lose the independence that you once had. So he, he kind of goes through abortion and then uh, various disabilities and then end-of-life issues, uh, culminating with euthanasia. Um, and I think um, suicide or, or this sense of assisted suicide where you don't stop your friend, even though I think it, m- most people would say that you should, but somebody who's trying to be consistent with this sense of, oh, I need to respect their decisions and see them only as a mind that has to be allowed to carry out whatever they want to do. Um It's it is it is a curious kind of consistency because in addition to completely getting rid of someone's body, someone's context, someone's community, it also is placing them only at a particular moment in time and refusing to acknowledge that people develop and change and that mental health can be treated. For example, I think that actually is is a denial of mental health treatment in its entirety and that people will change their minds about things. It's 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 really a denial of the limitation of us as people that are becoming and that aren't just pure being. I think, no,
0: I, I I think that's very well said. And especially the about changing and the radical dependence, just two, two short things. One of the greatest lectures that I've ever heard uh, was at AEI and a theologian talking about the relationship of the Trinity, but also an ontology of what a Christian ontology of a person looks like and how it starts off with radical relationship and dependency as the core of what it means to be human. So anything that you build out in terms of your philosophy or your ethics or your morals has to have that as a core understanding, which is in contrast to when I went to libertarian summer camp, where there was this guy, this very nice Scottish philosopher guy, and he, you know, had fun making all sorts of absurd, but logically consistent, cohesive in the libertarian worldview, like one of them was, you know, that if a person wants to cut their perfectly healthy limb off, you must allow them to do it because it is, that's their subjective welfare. That's the only way we can judge welfare. You have to let them do it. And I instinctively rebelled against that. And the only thing that I had was like, like maybe one sentence from uh, just cause I was very un- untutored at, at that point still. But the only thing I had was like one sentence from, I think I was like maybe trying to read Kant or like a summary of, of Kant. And it was basically just that there are, you know, some things that, you cannot rationally will, that that, that that are outside the bounds of uh, acceptable rationality. But, you know, I've since hopefully gained a, a little bit less poverty in, in my thinking. But I do think that there is sort of uninstinctive, like when you're confronted with a logical, consistent argument for why some of these things should be allowed, it's hard to resist it, which is why thinking and talking about this is so important.
3: I, I mean, for the record, I'm completely 100% with you in that the sort of libertarian-esque free will as an end in and of itself especially the sort of chaotic free will of just freedom from any sort of inhibitions or what have you that that's not i mean philosophically that's not actual freedom uh freedom to pursue the good is actual freedom but i i think i i side with david bentley hart in a sort of weird way in that kind of when you've entered this world or the society without any sort of inherent values that this just ipso facto becomes the best you can do. And so if we can't get a society where we all agree that it is a bad thing to cut off a perfectly healthy limb and you have a moral obligation to stop a person from cutting off a a perfectly healthy limb, that, that requires everyone to be on the same page with some sort of set of universal values or dare I say transcendent values that they all just acknowledge are there. And I'm left in this weird, weird state where I agree and really lament that we're not there but we're not, but the fact remains, we're not there. And so I don't quite know what to do with that other than shrug my shoulders and say, well, I guess let people live their lives.
1: I I think that the whole, should we allow people to cut off their limbs? Um, I mean, the real life application of this is substance use, what we currently call disorders. Um, but, you know, people's choice to use or abuse whatever drugs they want, uh, or even... Uh, anorexia or bulimia um what we currently call disordered self-image of someone's body um all of that the logical end to it to me is what chesterton saw which was that we should just prevent everyone from existing if the whole goal is to stop all of this suffering then the antinatalists are right and nobody should have any more children because we're just ruining the world with through climate change anyway and uh humans just shouldn't exist anymore so I, ultimately we have to start with some kind of defense of why is human life good
3: and the problem is it, it seems that that itself i mean catholicism in particular and christianity in general i mean heck most religions take as a given life is good and is worth preserving worth uh worth procreating worth well just it it, it is worth in end in and of itself and the problem is that that's now even that is up for debate uh, that is a vexed question, uh, under our current something, something underneath.
1: Yes. That's actually the, the kind of the main theme of the program that I'm in right now is who's bioethics, Beth, bioethics as Bretton said, how do you create any type of coherent public policy when there's so much opposition and so many different ideas of what the good life is? And so many different preferences that people are trying to fulfill, even if you agree that we're just going to try to live and let live, like you said, like, shrug your shoulders all right. Like, how does it affect me? I don't really know. Um, And and kind of dispense with this idea that you have a duty to help anyone. Um, And it's, it's hard for me as a nurse, too, because I do have that positive duty to my patients. I can't just remain agnostic about the things that they that they're doing, and and I don't. I mean, we all any ask anyone in healthcare, we all have super strong opinions when we think that our patients are doing things that are not healthy for them, and and I and you know, just like everyone has these strong opinions on bioethics, so it's not a problem that's going to go away. It's not an answer. There's not a question that uh, the program necessarily has an answer for, um, but more, I, th- I think you've just identified this central tension. Um, which I I don't know that living in a more homogenous society would necessarily solve it. I have seen that kind of gently floated as an answer. Well, maybe we just need to stop having so much diversity of opinion or something um, or diversity of background, even. Um, You
3: know what would help with that? The peasants not reading. (laughs) Not knowing. Yeah. Yep.
1: (laughs) I don't know, man. I think that, I- I've had a number of illiterate patients, and they're just as insistent <laughs> on all of their opinions. Oh,
3: don't take this from me. Don't don't take that hope from me.
1: <laughs> I think people uh, are, are have a universal tendency to be wrong, regardless of whether they can read.
2: <laughs> That's a critical hole in our argument: is that maybe the peasants are still dumb if <laughs> they can't read. <laughs> uh,
1: maybe we're dumb. <laughs> maybe they're smarter than us uh, who can read. <laughs>
0: <laughs> happier <laughs> we'll have to do a sometimes a, they're
1: wiser i definitely have met some patients who don't who are not very articulate and well i guess some of them speak english as a second language so i shouldn't say that um but they're they're not necessarily able to use you know complex sentences or long words or anything but i don't know there's a certain amount of lived experience that people have especially once they get to a certain age that makes me wonder about all of our cultural hallmarks of uh of prestige and knowledge and ignorance. Fair enough. Um,
0: sure. but it, it, it seems that we've we, we've moved slightly towards uh, the law question is is how would we regulate or how would we live out bioethics in a community if we knew what they were? But I do want to come back to uh, a, an excellent paper that that, that Allison wrote um, that we've all read talking about autonomy. And as the Sneed book, as the review of Sneed's book apparently argues, is that autonomy has become the central pillar of much of uh, ethical discourse, probably in general, but bioethics in particular is control over your own body, you having the final say as as a person or as a disembodied will. We we might argue uh, in contrast to a more embodied idea. Um, but Allison, do, do you want to just sort of run us through what you looked at with that, um, and then and and where you sort of came out?
1: Yeah, um, absolutely. The I, I, but f- before I do that, I want to um, just give a little bit of expert background, not really on what you said about autonomy being a, a key or a, a cornerstone of bioethics in particular and of ethical discourse in general. I think I think that's right. Um, it's it's an interesting position for it to be in because I don't think that even Western ethical discourse has always focused so much on autonomy. It's the From what I've learned in my classes, we can trace this to the end of the Second World War and a lot of the Nazi abuses that came out in the Nuremberg trials, and then a subsequent paying attention in Western countries, in both Western Europe and especially in the United States, to ways that we might have also been committing similar abuses against marginalized people, not to the same degree. I mean, we weren't experimenting on people by dunking them in cold water to see how uh they reacted and how quickly or slowly they froze we d- we weren't doing anything like that but um but some of the the eugenic sterilization or um eugenic euthanasia that Nazi Germany carried out was actually quite popular in the United States at the time and so this this um this focus that happened in the 1960s and the 1970s Within bioethics on autonomy came about because we were reacting against the, or uh, we I, obviously I was not alive then, but the the people were reacting against that sense of paternalism that that somebody could just dispense life and dispense death, um, and and not regard or value the individual, and so then it's it's kind of autonomy is kind of a reaction to that. To say, actually, the individual is the one that should get to decide all these things. Government shouldn't decide them. Community leaders shouldn't decide them. Individuals should decide them. And, and there are other ethical principles that are elucidated alongside autonomy that kind of the seminal bioethics textbook by Beecham and Childress says, uh, respect for autonomy, non-maleficence or do no harm, beneficence or doing good and justice. Of course, justice and beneficence can mean lots of different things depending on who you ask, but, um, but, but it's, I'm, I'm just trying to establish it's not just autonomy, but it can seem like autonomy, especially in the simplified political discourse that we hear around things like assisted suicide and abortion and other bioethical topics, it can seem like autonomy is the the only, it's, it's kind of the end of the argument. Oh, it's their choice, so so therefore it's okay. So, the essay was inspired by wanting to look at philosophically how much support is there for that, and what what is the point of autonomy anyway? But so I, the title of it is "What good is Autonomy?" And I was actually kind of surprised, but Sam mentioned in our private conversation he was he was surprised to see that autonomy is not appealed to. In philosophy, as the end all, be all, supreme good, there are a couple of philosophers who will say they think it is a good in and of itself per se. Um, but most of them will acknowledge, like what Stephen said earlier, that it's it's not just autonomy itself; it's using it to pursue the good life. That real freedom is is about pursuing good and not just doing whatever you want without any reference to what's good or evil. Um, I, I,
3: for the most part, I, I agree with you completely. There is one stopping point that I hit, because I, I I find myself nodding vigorously, and then I think of Brave New World, where mm. everyone is ostensibly happy, everyone is living a quote-unquote fulfilled life, and then the Savage John comes around and says, this is not life, you're not autonomous. And it, I think it, we would look at that society and say, if everyone was acting autonomously and acting as they were acting there... I mean, some of the more lamentable ethical practices like non monogamy and uh, regular substance abuse, notwithstanding, we'd actually probably say that, like, yeah, that's a society that kind of knows what's up. It's disabled people have proper functions. It's really highly functioning people have proper functions. Like, everyone is working together, getting along. Violence isn't really a thing. Mm -hmm. If they were autonomous, everything would be good. And so, that's the only thing where I kind of run into a wall and think, well, wait, autonomy, at least Huxley seems to be saying autonomy is a good in and of itself. Although, granted, he might not be necessarily a hard hitting like philosopher.
1: Sure, sure. Yeah, I think I, that actually was a thought experiment that came up in one of the articles that if we could just create a world, like, sort of a determinist world, where all, there was all these pleasurable inputs and not a lot of painful inputs, and people just made decisions. Uh, that or sh- I, sh- I guess I should say, were led to make decisions that ended up with good results. But is that good in and of itself, even though they didn't really have much power? And so that was, that was one of the philosophers who was saying, I think autonomy in and of itself is part of the process of having the good life, um, which I, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with, that there is some value in the voluntary choice thereof and not just being drugged or led along. Uh, into making your choices. Um, but I mean, I would strongly push back against the idea that it's the primary good and definitely against the idea that it's the only good, um, especially because every philosopher, either political philosopher or just theoretical ethical philosopher that I uh, encountered wasn't talking about autonomy in this in this like thought experiment sense. They were talking about it in the kind of democratic citizen sense of we need autonomy because we need to be able to make XYZ type choices for our educational attainment, for our material security, women should be able to vote. All of these, uh, like the Taliban is terrible because they take away that choice from women, even if, this was actually what one author said, even if a female physician decided that she could give up uh, being a physician and her place in society, and she chose to put herself under someone else's thumb, that's not autonomy. Even if it felt like the voluntary choice that she was saying, because, because they're not concerned about the thought experiment world. They're concerned about what is she actually doing. So well, also the
2: argument, at least as you presented in your article, was that the reason that that autonomy is, that autonomous decision is unjustified is because it's it's cutting off your ability to achieve like greater ends, right? It's because you're putting yourself mm-hmm. under somebody else's thumb. And so like, I don't know, I think we need to make a distinction between like the liberal democratic, like. You can't make a. You can't sell yourself into slavery. You can't make it. You can't make a. Cho- you can't. Or you, you. It is immoral to sell yourself into slavery. It's immoral to inhibit yourself to the point where you can't make any decisions. You know. We
1: should. Um, we, we should talk about dueling because Daniel Callahan brings up this. Oh yeah, that was great. Point, I think that, that we we outlaw dueling because you cannot grant the right to kill yourself to somebody else. I think we need to remember that in our euthanasia discussions. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I think yeah. that there's at least historically this understanding that there are rational choices, or there are choices that can be made rationally that are unjustifiable on those terms, that there is something beyond that that has to, uh, a, a pre-justification a beyond which... Uh, uh, you're, you 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 can't go in the case of some decisions. But then the question is, if I I'd be curious honestly, if two people wanted to duel today and they both signed like a full set of legally binding stuff, like if that went to the Supreme Court, where would that fall down? Um, depending on on who's there.
1: My really cynical answer is that it would depend on how sexual it was perceived to be. <laughs> It, not to be oh, dude, too crass,
3: but that was that was actually a case in Germany, right? There was the famous um cannibalism. Uh, mm-hmm. voluntary cannibalism. And I think yeah. I think he was eventually tried and found guilty for murder. But it was a big controversial thing of like, you no, know, this guy right. signed up and said he was okay with being eaten and there mm-hmm. was a the sexual component. And it, it yeah, if you guys haven't read it, it's super, super weird, super messed up. Like, I remember essay. hearing
1: about it. Yeah. It's yeah. Ugh. <laughs> ugh.
3: So, I mean, yeah, I, yeah, I think Allison also, has a point there,
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, we can we can detour back to our main point, though, which uh, my other reaction, Stephen, to what you were saying about bringing up brave new world is this is where I feel like philosophy kind of segues into theology, and we start talking about because i I couldn't avoid it when I was talking about it, predestination or voluntary acts or and then this gets into what is the will, you know, what is reason.
3: Really sorry to interrupt. One more, one more thing. I guess speaking of theology, so I guess predicating this or uh, prefacing this with Taliban bad, slavery bad, uh, dueling bad. <laughs> but similar to the woman physician giving up her rights and whatnot to go submit to Taliban rule, isn't that exactly what a monk or a nun does when they join a monastery? They voluntarily give up, vol- voluntarily give up rights to submit to a rule that they believe will actually get them to where they want to go, i.e. to holiness. Uh, Who are we to say that the woman giving up her rights to live under Taliban rule isn't doing that exact same thing?
1: I think the the critical part of that question is who are we to say. It's the authority question all over again. Because, I mean, as a... it, that's that's like kind of the classic American challenge. You, it makes you kind of sit back on your heels, like, well, I don't want to be telling somebody else what to do with their time. Or, I mean, because in, in all honesty, if someone told me I want to just submit to my husband for the rest of my life and never leave the house and cover my entire body and all you know all these other aspects of Sharia law, I think as a, interpersonally, I would feel really awkward saying like, no, you can't do that. Like, <laughs> how dare you think about that? But but yeah, it gets to this question of what are the ends of life? And especially if you think that there are supernatural ends of life, um, which is what you, I think what you're bringing up with the monks and the nuns, especially, cause I think probably the best version of that example would be like a cloistered monastery where they, they really wouldn't have a lot of freedom to go and do what, go about daily life like normal people do. Um, so maybe similar to, to a woman that d- doesn't have freedom to leave the house, uh, very much. So yeah, I, it really, it, it in- instantly comes back to the theological, what does God want from you? And, and how much does that clash with this liberal democratic vision of what people sh- should be doing with their lives? I guess my facial expression won't get <laughs> captured over audio, but uh, for that to say like secular bioethics that doesn't, acknowledge any divine authority also has usually several competing visions for what people should be doing with their lives. And that's why they would push back against monks or nuns or women exclusively submitting to their husbands and not leaving the house, etc. Um, that because they also have a, a an account of what the good life is and what people should do.
3: Darker side of pluralism, I suppose.
2: Maybe it is is just moving on to the next step of the article, the next part of your article, and we can circle back here if if need be. But I just found it so interesting as you were giving an, an account of all the different like subfields of bioethics, and particularly the disabilities, like the disability advocacy and disability ethics, and environmental ethics, and how like autonomy has been pretty firmly rejected mm. as like a sufficient or even a good standard. Like the environmental ethics, particularly clashes with autonomy all the time and like those are entirely secular fields like there's no appeal to the catholic church going on in the environmental ethics field um and yet what is if you were to surmise like why is it that in the abortion debate and in like euthanasia we've just like taken autonomy to be or like we meaning like general mainstream society has taken autonomy as like a value to its end, on its face, right? How do we? How do we get there? I mean, how is it so far detached from the rest of like medical ethics? I, I, I was, I was just, I was reading your article, and it was very good at giving an account. I just couldn't even conceive of how we. Got
1: that to this is a place. really good question. Um, and what Sam's referring to is a lot of disability rights literature that is pushing back on these accounts of personhood. That are, that are very disembodied, very much about rationality and self-consciousness and all these, these um, functional capacities that not everyone has, especially people with severe disabilities, um, with the most extreme example being uh, babies that don't have brains or anencephaly. Um, and, and then, of course, there's a whole spectrum uh, beyond that of children and adults that live longer, but still are very, very disabled. And that literature really, really like roundly rejects the idea that autonomy is the ultimate good or that it defines pe- why people have value uh, or anything like that. And the same thing's true of a lot of these, <laughs> the nuclear bomb literature, the, <laughs> the climate change and, uh, and environmental ethics literature, um, because it sees that there's individual decisions can cumulatively have a really bad effect for everybody else. And so there's this recognition in in those bodies of literature that we have to be thinking about how our decisions impact some kind of common good or greater good. And so and we can't just narrowly focus on our own lives and what we want to do, which I actually think is kind of the right approach. Not that I agree with the um, solutions necessarily that all those authors offer, but, um, I, I do think that they have got it right in terms of trying to engaging in this conversation of figuring out our community obligations. The reason that we don't see that with abortion and euthanasia is because of the history of the autonomy of the individual being so paramount in response to government abuses. That's my personal opinion. I think that the individual focus, especially on, say, a pregnant woman who might be considering an abortion or someone who's terminally ill, or even just very mentally ill, maybe they have treatment resistant depression or something, that it's it, it's easy to see only them as an individual and to kind of dismiss any type of greater consistency um, that, that might be achieved by treating everyone the same as you treated them. Or, or it, it, it's very easy, morally speaking, in that type of situation to just focus on that one person um, because we have such a high respect for the individual. And so then you can dismiss that maybe there's a baby involved or maybe other disabled people or other mentally ill people or, you know, and so on and so forth. You can kind of broaden everyone that might be affected by the public policy decisions that get made in these cases. Um, So, yeah, I think that's why, I I think it's just, I don't know where the moral focus is, but I do think it would be more consistent if we had uh, what I really like the phrase intergenerational justice. If we had an intergenerational approach, to every bioethics issue and, and didn't, uh, and you know, I think it's probably a good thing that we're not letting the government dictate all of this um, <laughs> the way that it was maybe true earlier in the 20th century. Um, so, so I do appreciate the focus on the individual in that sense, um, but it, it might be better. In fact, I think I'd argue it would be better, but it definitely might be better if we focused on the generational aspect of it and not just the individual person outside of the context of their, their parents and their children, and their community.
0: Listen, I'll take a definitely might be better any day of the week, Uh, but let's, let's, let's move into just uh, a example of bioethic field studies or, or practice Uh, in this case in Canada of a view of sort of taking what you were talking about, you know, these, these case studies where you can view someone as a sole individual and then do a, you know, very theoretical, ethical analysis of them and sort of what some of that, uh, has looked like for our naughty neighbors to the north. Uh, Sam, do you want to walk us through this? Yeah,
2: very, very naughty neighbors, I would say. It's uh, two articles that, uh, I guess, Brevin sent them to me, but I was reading these in imp- pair. First article is from 2017, which was right after Canada passed a law that allowed people to request a doctor, doctor-assisted death um, in the hospital, there were certain standards about, like, they need to, like, get an interview and stuff. But it it seems pretty low. If somebody requested it, they could be killed. And there were questions about, like, what was the impact of this? And this article proudly proclaims that it could save the country up to $136 million a year, which I don't know. I've seen my medical bills come in, and that looks like pennies. So uh, it's not very, I mean, it, it seems like a pretty small a. Uh, bit of money. And yet there, the whole article, I read it as a satire almost. It was basically saying, well, I mean, we could save some money, but it will require some startup costs, which is just eerie. Um, and time will tell if it's actually like net beneficial. And we also need to look at the impact on patients. Okay, fine. We uh, cut to uh, twenty. 22, and uh, the Associated Press reports of multiple people, disabled individuals, mentally unsound individuals who have chosen euthanasia uh, in Canada with no consultation to their families. And indeed, the families can't even get any information about their relatives who have been killed. And so you see this playing out where people cannot get information about what's what's going on. And so really, there's a lot of assumptions throughout the article by family members of was he... Put to death because of costs uh reading on we see examples of patients taking recordings of doctors who are mentioning hey just so you know it's costing this much per day to keep you here there is this option of death with dignity and um you know the, the original article said like we're never of course we'd never discuss the costs with patients i mean there's, there's so much to say here but one part that stuck out to me is that we really can't get away from the common good reasoning and the reasoning of impacts on families about like what our care is going to take. But when you systematize something like this, you're basically left with the lowest common denominator, which is cost of how much is it going to cost to keep you here per day? Um, with the encouraging statistics being hey, 40% of the people who are killed, it's really they're only really losing a week of their life and 60% are losing a month or less, which I mean, you've gotten to the point of reasoning here. I mean, it's 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 on. Even though I've had time to prepare for this. It, it leaves me almost speechless that this is the analysis that we're looking at in 2022 of when to end somebody's life or not. So, and 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 all this comes. You, you see that we've we started with autonomy, and it's gradually shifted towards autonomy being very quickly lost, and the people that it impacts as Allison correctly predicts and forecasts in her article. People who this will affect the most are those who don't have the autonomy, don't have the power, Um, which again, going back to your article, Alison, something that we didn't really talk about and I think was immensely um, powerful was that you you distill autonomy down to power. And so it's really, we're not looking at people's autonomy, we're respecting people's power and who can assert that autonomy, uh, which is completely left out of the conversation and definitely is being left out of the conversation in Canada. When you... When you take this kind of a, a stance and exalt individual autonomy for, and then have that 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 underlying idea of cost, what you're left with is really just a power game, which people can advocate for themselves strongly enough in that situation. Because I can fully imagine if you're depressed and you know you're going to die in three months of terminal cancer and you're being told day in and day out, you're costing your family this many thousands of dollars per day. I mean do we really think that, that choice to end your life is autonomous? Um, apparently we do. And that is gravely concerning. On the other hand, how do you make system-wide policies like this? I know Alison, you have some thoughts on, on that, maybe some more empirical examples of how we make decisions like giving and ceasing care. And I'd be interested to hear that, but I don't think this is how we should
1: do it. <laughs> yes, I, I would definitely agree with you. I, of course I have opinions, you know me, I have opinions on lots of things. I think bioethics just makes you have more and longer opinions on more things. <laughs> um, yeah, Canada's um, assisted suicide or medical aid in dying or death with dignity. They're all vaguely synonymous, Different people will prefer different terminology depending on what they think is happening. Assisted suicide is what I think more people that oppose it call it. Um, And death with dignity is what political advocates call it when they don't want people to know, I think, exactly what happens. (laughs) That's my very cynical view of it. But um, anyway, uh, death with dignity is legal in Washington State, Oregon State, um, California. and a couple of states on the East coast. I don't remember which ones Um, as
2: the, as probably New York. Yeah, I'm not sure I I was going to say
1: New York, but I actually think it, I stopped because I I can't remember and I don't want to say it wrong. Um, But it was the result of advocacy uh, dating back to the 1990s by Dr. Timothy Quill, uh, who is, is a huge proponent of this idea that people should be able to have control over their deaths because it's really undignified to them to force them to go through all of the the indignities of dying of, uh, and this, I hope that this isn't too graphic for people that aren't in healthcare, uh, but just soiling yourself, needing someone to help you with all the activities of daily living, um, needing someone to help you eat, maybe losing the ability to really communicate or to think clearly maybe descending into more and more pain that requires more and more uh, intensive regimens of pain control to deal with. Th- this is all stuff that happens even after someone has decided to stop curative treatment, which is a totally different thing from s- suicide. I mean, stopping treatment is just saying that you, you're you gonna decline further medical interventions and you're okay with your disease course taking its natural progression. Um, but that can sometimes mean this, Sort of long. I mean, sometimes that could be a matter of minutes or hours, but sometimes it's a process of days or weeks. Sometimes even years, depending on the illness, um, where someone gradually loses their ability to care for themselves, and so they're reliant on other people to care for them. And they might be reliant on family members, or uh, increasingly, they're reliant on the healthcare system, which costs money, and which is why cost comes into it. And so, so Dr. Quill uh, has advocated for a long time to get. The laws in the United States changed so that people can choose to take not not a pain medication or a sedative, um, not like an overdose of an opioid or anything, but a lethal medication, a pill, to, um, to end their lives. Assisted suicide means that the patient takes the pill themselves, and uh, euthanasia means that the nurse or the doctor administers it to them by a, some type of injection. That's like the kind of the hair distinction there. In the United States, euthanasia itself is not legal. As a nurse, I cannot administer a fatal dose of potassium chloride to a patient, even if they say that even if it's all lined up under some kind of death with dignity statute. I can't do that. I can only give them maybe a barbiturate or something uh, to so that they can take themselves. Um and, but of course, once you cross the line into it's okay for doctors and nurses to help patients kill themselves um, as a reassertion of control. Which is a side note. When people do that in other contexts, like say a teenager that slits their wrists or something, we say that it's like they're they're trying to get, they're they're looking for help or maybe they're looking for attention. You know, like it's the reassertion of control because they don't have control over anything else. But we see that as like a bad thing. You know, but but when someone's at the end of their lives, I think. Sometimes in some secular minds like Dr. Quill's, the calculus changes because teenagers are supposed to have a lot to look forward to with their lives. You know, there's, they've got a lot ahead of them, hopefully, but somebody who's older or who's has this terminal illness, they see life as this, I've been calling it this scale of value and disvalue where the person has just tipped too far and too permanently into disvalue. Whereas a teenager, you know, they still have a lot of value left. And so in theory, the patient is the one making this decision that, okay, my life is not worth living anymore. And there's just nothing valuable left about it. But in practice, of course, cost comes into it, which is where Sam's spot on analysis of these articles becomes very troubling. um, Because you're not really supposed to tell the patient how much things cost. I've I've been asked that by patients before. How much is this Tylenol going to cost me? You know, (laughs) how much does this cost? How much does the scan cost? And I actually, how
0: much does the Tylenol cost, Allison? <laughs>
1: well, I know that I'm supposed to Way too much. I, I know that I'm supposed to encourage <laughs> you to take the pill Tylenol because it only costs a few cents. Whereas a bottle of IV Tylenol costs like $40 or something. And uh which is about a thousand milligrams of Tylenol, which you can definitely get through a couple of pills. And uh, actually you can get more than that through a couple of pills. And um, so but some you know, for various reasons. Sometimes it's better to do IV Tylenol, but I, I've, I've had conversations with pharmacists about trying to advocate, saying, "No, I think the patient needs an IV. Like, I'm not comfortable trying to get them to swallow this, or yada, yada, yada." But it costs so much more, so it it does come into the conversation. Obviously, you know, this is a fairly low stakes thing; nobody's living or dying over their Tylenol. But it's it's part of healthcare already, um, and so it it totally makes sense to me that when you we've involved nurses and doctors in this business of. Uh, killing their patients, honestly, is what it is, um, or at the very least, just supervising their patients' deaths, um, then, of course, cost is going to come into it again. And um, it's, it's unfortunate, but it's, it's kind of inevitable. Uh, I, I, it's interesting that it's kind of a predictive analysis in this one, because I'm, I, would, I would be curious to see what the retroactive analysis is in terms of, oh, we encourage this too much to our medical staff. And then they accidentally started telling the patients about it because these patients are already so sensitive about how much of a burden they are, especially if they didn't have this level of, uh, if they didn't need this level of dependence and help earlier in their lives. Uh, You know, some patients that have needed that a lot of their lives, they're, they're less, I mean, it, it bothers them less because they're just used to it, but somebody that has this decline where they live sort of a more typical healthy life and then, over the last five years, they've really started needing a lot more help. They, or even the last year, I mean, they're just so embarrassed. They're that I can't, I can't tell you, I cannot, if I had a dollar for the number of people that have apologized to me because I needed to help them to the bathroom or I needed to help change them or I needed to help feed them or something. I mean, I would probably be able to go to Disneyland or something. (laughs) People are just very, they they just don't want to impose and they're so sorry. And I'm so sorry. You have to deal with this. This probably isn't your favorite favorite part of your day. Yada, yada. And to me, it's just kind of like, whatever, man, I'm a nurse. (laughs) Maybe some people would find this weird, but that's why they're not in healthcare. So, (laughs) so yeah, to me, it's, it's nothing. It's not, it doesn't even register to me. But I think patients like this are very sensitive emotionally to feeling like they're burdens. And so if this cost thing is brought up to them, which it sounds like it has been, I mean, that's, that's, it's for some, especially for somebody that might already be suffering from mental illness related to their disease process, or even if just mental illness was the primary uh, reason that they were seeking assisted suicide. I mean, yeah, they're, that's going to really have an impact on them. And then that gets back to, How is, how is that a choice? (laughs) Where's autonomy here?
2: (laughs) Yeah. That, I mean, that's fascinating. And maybe you can cut this out because it's it's more like, I mean, I can, because it's it's more personal, but I mean, I totally get that like having needed care for chronic condition, Mm -hmm. right? It's I totally get the embarrassment of needing the care and the concern about costs. I mean, I can imagine if we didn't plan for needing to spend, you know, for, for basically plan for maxing out, our insurance deductible every year. I could totally imagine being like very sheepish about the cost and very afraid of that. So I can, yeah, I, I mean, I can, I can completely understand all that. You don't have to answer this question, Allison. And maybe it's inappropriate to do so, but have you, have you had to to deliver I would the bills before? I have
1: never done it, and I think that's protected under conscientious okay. objection. But no, that was not a routine okay. part of my last job or my current job. Um, I think that it might have been okay. done at one of the hospitals I worked at on the oncology floor, which I did not work on. Um, it's possible. I don't, I don't know. I was not involved in it. But no, this is not something that thankfully has bled over into routine things that all nurses in the United States have experience with or anything. Um, I, 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 know, I think I probably know people who've participated in it. But... Um, No, I now what I have done, which can feel kind of morally similar, is managing extreme pain crises or anxiety crises at the end of life. And the way that we, the kind of fine line that we have there is that we give very small doses of medication, not lethal medication, but like a sedative or opioid, something like that, um, and then escalate it as necessary. uh, With the kind of thought that this person has, is not pursuing a cure anymore, like they They've come to the point where they've decided they don't want any more medical interventions. And so research shows that we probably are not hastening anyone's death by giving them all of this medication anyway. And in fact, actually people that get hospice care, uh, end of life care within the last six months, they actually end up living longer than people that don't have it. Um, but, but sometimes it can still feel like you're progressively overdosing someone as you're giving, because it could be as frequently as every five to 15 minutes. That you're giving these small doses that c- very quickly cumulatively add up um but but we distinguish that quite firmly from a massive overdose like just pushing a huge amount of it all at once um i have never done that because that i think that's a crime i think there are people I, there was a doctor in ohio that was recently prosecuted for that in an icu um and he and he justified mm. it basically in terms of euthanasia in terms of saying these people were suffering and um i i don't think that they should have to suffer. And so, sorry, I turned on Mm -hmm. music somehow. So I'm going to X that out. There we go. Um, He, he said, I don't think that they should have to suffer. So I'm just going to give them this big dose of medication instead of wasting my time over three hours, giving them smaller doses. And, um, but, but he was prosecuted because that you can't just stop someone breathing like that. But at the same time, I have definitely been the person that gave someone their last dose of medication and mere, minutes later they stop breathing and there is that sense it's it's like the guilt of the last dose it's talked about in the literature you know that this person's already dying like that you've been watching them pass away for hours usually at that point um it's it's not like you just you know took out somebody that was bright and smiling a minute earlier but but at the same time it's it is kind of this tension of like oh did they really need that or you know you, cause you don't want to be the person that killed them so Anyway, it's uh, it's it's, yeah. it's it's all these fine lines in end of life care, but I I don't think I've done anything remotely approximating administering a lethal medication to anyone.
0: One, I am struck by how uh, disconnected from anything real my job is relative to yours. <laughs> uh, but secondarily, yeah. I I I do wonder if the escalatory pain treatment, despite the end effect, I'm pretty sure, although honestly. I am also pretty sure that you're a better uh, uh, Thomist than I am, but that the what the doctrine of double effect yes. should protect you in that yeah. case. So, um, or I don't know if it's a doctrine, the concept of double yeah. effect. It's it's not your intention to 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 end their yeah, life,
1: and the uh, and the the extra uh, dose is not what ends their life either. Really, it could contribute to respiratory depression, which could be, I suppose, a confounding factor. But I mean, if someone is dying of metastatic cancer or sepsis or something i mean that's what's that's what's going to get written as the cause of death when i call the doctor or call the family or call the organ donation people or whoever and, and talk to them i mean i'm not saying like yeah my dilated dose is what killed them. <laughs> nobody would think that you know 0.5 of dilaudid is it's fairly negligible
3: absolutely getting um, back I- to the cause co- sorry just one real quick thing getting back to the um cost analysis i'm it's it, it's an interesting inversion of peter singer's uh $500 thought experiment um or the uh, the 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 really 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 good samaritan mm-hmm. experiment where uh, you're on your way to a job interview you're wearing really nice clothes you see a child drowning um, and you have the choice do you ruin your really nice nice clothes to go rescue uh the, the child and cost $500 uh and like everyone would say oh uh, of of course you do. Like, why wouldn't you? Except this seems like the, the the logic that they're using in this article seems to be this weird inversion of it, of like, well, we would save so much money just simply by, by encouraging doctor-assisted uh, death or uh, perhaps more appropriately, assisted suicide. Uh, and Peter Singer is, weirdly enough, one of the bigger proponents of euthanasia, but it seems that his analysis here is being used in a, it, it, like if we were to use his analysis seriously, we would actually walk away with the exact opposite conclusion. So it's a very, very strange phenomenon that we find ourselves in using cost as a justification for Absolutely, children. and
1: Singer is not completely consistent in his thoughts about euthanasia because he definitely paid for a lot of treatment for his mother when she had Alzheimer's, uh, as he should have, as he should have. Yeah. I'm not criticizing him, except in the sense of like general theoretical inconsistencies. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Singer definitely believes in euthanasia and in infanticide and abortion. And he he has a very strong commitment to personhood being like this rational, self-willing, self-conscious thing. It's, it's a total example of all the disembodied stuff that we've been talking about. So I think that, yeah, I think that maybe it w- his, his thought experiment would change a little bit if the person that was drowning was somebody that was dying of terminal cancer that was gonna instead of a kid you know it was somebody that was gonna die next week anyway or something i, I don't know uh, i i would actually be no, i fair would fair actually fair. be curious what what he would say to that um because he
2: he'd probably say it depends what your job interview is for right if you're if you're if you're interviewing for a wildlife protection organization you better get that job because you're the best one for that that position unless you're not in which case like Unless if you're a terrible person who's a lazy employee, then go throw yourself in the lake too, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's it, 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 the guy's ridiculous, but anyway.
1: I, I appreciate his attempt to get people to have consistent moral feelings about strangers. Though I think that he, he uh, where i appreciate the ethical thrust of his work is that he tries to get people to care about stuff that happens far away from them into people that they don't know just as much as they care about stuff that happens to them and people that they know and that is worth pursuing but some of his other stuff is definitely not
0: <laughs> it's almost neither here nor there but i almost disagree with that really? point um the 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 easy yeah in the sense that well, there are a, a few different ways that, that that you can come at it, but viewing strangers. So, the di- the difference is proximity. Viewing strangers' problems as as equal to your own or your close friends, sure. That 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 makes sense in that you know we are all children of God or whatever universal you want to apply in the situation. We are duty bound to to do that. However, our obligations are first to those people closest to us, and there's different ways that you can come at that. You can either come at it just you know your obligations are to your family, community, uh, city, state, nation, sort of in in, in that rank Mm -hmm. order. Or you could come at it from like sort of a feminist ethics of care angle where the people with whom you have relationships and sort of concentric circles are those to whom you have obligation. Um, And then there's also the further question that we've talked about a little bit in previous episodes about things like the news giving you every problem everywhere in the world all at once. And what's your responsibility to care about that? Mm -hmm. What's your you know, what, what, what moral weight is that supposed to have? And it seems, or at least my, my my conclusion is that your circle of responsibility is uh, not infinite. Sure. And that there is a limitation to your abilities and your limitation, your obligation extends that far. Maybe you have an obligation, should you be presented with the opportunity to expand that, that, that Mm -hmm. range, but it's not, it's not, on every person to know everything about the floods happening in, in Pakistan right now and also be doing everything that they can about it necessarily. They should be doing everything they can in general in various spheres of influence, but it's not all of the problems of the world are not on everyone all
1: of us. Right. Rest, is what I'm right. I don't know if Singer would say yeah. that. I think he just I think his argument was a little bit less expansive than that, that your charity shouldn't just be limited to your own neighbors. Like he he was kind of critiquing this idea of love your neighbor, but almost in a very Christian way of why wouldn't you also consider charity to Pakistan? You know, like, uh, so I agree with, I I do agree with what you're saying, especially about the news where they try to get you to care about everything all at once. And it's like exhausting. And then I think it leads to this sort of deadening of all your moral senses. But Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And then I guess the other thing I would say is what you've identified there in terms of your special obligations to say like your family um, as opposed to a stranger. Um, one is kind of interesting because from a Christian perspective, there's a lot of pure religion is taking care of the widow and the orphan, the fatherless, the stranger, you know, the exile, somebody that you don't necessarily have that natural obligation toward. And I, I think this is kind of where the Catholic division between the vocation of marriage and the vocation of religious life comes into play too, where the vocation of marriage has got these natural, special obligations. Obviously, a parent has an obligation to their own child that's drowning before any other child that's drowning, I, I think. I, I mean, I guess I don't have a whole argument yeah. to prove that, but that's my instinct. As a
0: father, I would say <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes.
1: And, um, and that whereas yeah. somebody that's in religious life has kind of dispensed with those those special obligations to family life on and maybe not even dispense, but almost renounced them in favor of treating the entire world like their family. Um, and I think it's a good thing that there's both, you Let's know, it. it doesn't, not everyone is be called to oh. both of them because you can only do one, you know?
2: And again, we wrap around there to special obligations versus, you know, just general obligations. And that gets right back to the abortion debate, mm-hmm. right? About, autonomy being restricted because of these special obligations and even then we've now from a completely different direction worked ourselves back to you know familial bonds and like sexual ethics being way more complicated than just personal preference yeah absolutely Um,
1: because it yeah because it involves motherhood and fatherhood and i and we have to include fatherhood because honestly and this is this is not like a clinical opinion, because I don't really work too much with women that have had abortions, but it's just an opinion based on reading the literature on why women have abortions. It's so much of it is because of their, the father's not doing what they should be doing, the, the lack of the social support and the stability of the family. And and of course, you can trace that back to sexual behavior that's maybe not encouraging a very stable family environment too. But I mean, even, even then, I mean, the number of married women too who yeah it's it's it is very interesting to see how women cast their choice to have an abortion as them being a good mother. Like they understand the special obligation mm-hmm. there. They're they're not really appealing to, oh, this is just my choice and I should just be able to do whatever I want to. Of course I can get this wart removed because it's my body. Why wouldn't anyone tell me that I can't get this wart removed? That is not the attitude, you know? It's it it does get back to this this idea of parenthood. Um and so yeah it it's more of a that's why, that's why I like the idea of intergenerational justice and this like intergenerational ethics approach. And because I, I, that's just how people think of it too. You know, it's yeah. like, we don't think of ourselves as like yeah, these isolated, and, yeah. atomized things.
2: Well, we don't in in real life, but also like when you go back, and this is gonna sound really political, but when you go back to, what was the decision of Roe v. Wade, right? It was ultimately about privacy of the mother from the decisions of the father, right? Wasn't that fundamentally well, what it it, what it Wade was
1: was the um was the uh, representative of the state of texas i can't remember if he was the attorney general or what it was it was like the woman versus the state i don't even know
0: yeah privacy okay. versus the state regulating right behavior. yeah never mind they got that out I, th- I
2: thought there was something in there dealing with the with the um the father who was trying to appeal to the state and the so state regulating ha-
1: Happened, but that's uh, not Roe v. Wade. I don't line. know the name of the case, but
2: uh, I wasn't okay. Maybe I. Got yeah, there it, have been court it, cases where like men try out,
1: to stop abortions or something uh, because they don't want their their or they're presumed the father of the child and they don't want the mother of the child to have an abortion. But it's always been dismissed because of Roe v. Well, Wade yeah. and Casey. Um, but I, I mean, I don't know. It'd be interesting nowadays <laughs> as the legal environment changes to see if certain states that. That lawsuit might actually have some kind of chance of succeeding, which is a little bit interesting because I think—I mean, I think that would be a little bit more plausible because it just requires the pregnancy to continue, as opposed to a father suing to try to force some type of prenatal treatment um, or some for the woman to to take some type of action medically speaking uh, to deliver a certain way, you know, whatever. And not that I think most men even know enough about pregnancy and childbirth to bring these types of lawsuits, but. <laughs> <laughs> no offense guys. The,
0: the rare individual who is fully aware. No, yeah. you you learn a lot but you definitely uh uh don't learn everything for sure. Well, on that happy note, let's move into the next segment of the program which is the game. I, I have two uh ethical games for you that will that, that will test Actually, your with all
2: that we're your, <laughs> your,
0: your your ethical wits. Uh the first one is higher Now this. Now As this oh Oh, damn it it, we're the problem um are the the problem
3: with with
0: okay all right so this is a survey taking in taken one taken in uh 2012 one taken in 2022 and it's a american's view of the top problem with the state of moral values in the united states so what i'm going to do is i'm going to give a issue the percent that America that Americans said was the top problem in 2012. And then you simply have to say higher or lower for 2022. Okay. Did this go higher, lower or the same?
3: Higher as in people ha- have it rated as a higher concern?
0: Yes, that, that a larger percent of people said this is the top moral issue. So moral and, issue. Okay. And, and I will keep track of points. So when you say higher or lower do like your hand too, so I can keep track. Higher, lower. All right. Uh, but the opposite of whatever I just did because I did it backwards. So in 2012, 18% of Americans said consideration of others was the top moral problem. In 2022, higher or lower? Higher. Higher, lower, lower. You are all wrong. It's exactly the same. Eighteen percent still say that consideration oh, gosh, of, of, darn it. of others is the top problem. Perfect. All right, next one.
3: Also, it, we wait. We should we should actually like say aloud our answer so that our listeners can actually okay.
0: hear. so let's say it in order. Uh, uh, Sam, Allison, Stephen, say your orders. Bah, bah, bah. I said, and, I said and, lower. Yeah, I. I, we'll I don't will try and do it. We care about people at all. And we'll and we'll try and do it faster. All right, next racism slash discrimination. In 2012, it was two. Higher or lower?
3: Sam, I think you're first. Yeah, Sam, say it. Yeah, absolutely higher. Higher, 100%.
0: You are all correct. It went from 2% to 8%. Only 8%? Okay, next one. In 2012, 10% of people said that lack of faith or religion was a top moral problem. In 2022, higher or lower? Lower, lower, lower. I see. You are all correct. In 2012, 7% of Americans said that a lack of morals was the top problem with the state of morals. Uh, Is this higher, lower, or the same? All right. Sam says higher. Steven says higher. higher. Allison says lower. You are all wrong because it's exactly the
2: same.
1: (laughs) Come on. (laughs) This just sounds like such a 1950s thing to say.
0: (laughs) The top problem with the lack of morals in our society is a lack of morals in our society. (laughs) Um, I think it's great. Okay uh in 2012 3% of americans said that abortion was the top problem with the state of morals in america in 2022 higher or lower
2: Wait, abortion mean like not enough or too many the Just
0: top, the top problem, problem with the state of values I'm say the, the same the most important abortion.
2: problem i'm going to still say it's it's higher in both cases i think yeah higher
0: higher higher yeah. uh you are correct yeah. it, it, is yeah. Yeah. it is higher it went from 3% to 4% it's very close
1: really? so i it said it, i thought it was about the same <laughs>
0: Sam and Steven have, have pulled ahead. All right, next up, uh, let's do sense of entitlement. In 2012, this was 5%. In 2022, higher or lower?
3: Mm, that's tough. I don't know. I'm going to go many, higher. What was the percent originally? Five. let Let's say
0: Same. Steven is correct. It was <gasps> higher, it, it rose to ah. 6%. Gosh.
3: Uh This generation, it's entitled entitlement.
0: Everyone gets oh, a trophy. I forgot about
2: all the Gen, the Gen Zers growing up. Of course. Dang it.
3: Look, we didn't want your participation trophies, okay?
0: Final question for game one. There are still more points to be gained. Don't worry. But final question. In 2012, 5% of Americans said that greed slash selfishness was the most important problem with the state of, of moral values. Is this higher or lower today? Yeah, lower. Despite all of her training, Stephen and Sam are correct. It went <laughs> down to 3%.
1: I don't think we get...
3: Oh, the so-called experts. I
1: know, right? This is why nobody is an expert bioethicist. <laughs> there, actually, legitimately, I took an entire class... On whether or not bioethics should be considered a profession or have like a a, a test for entry, you know, like a certification and all. Of, and my my professor was actually really against it. <laughs> it. Kind of made me against it too. I I'm not super invested. I don't work professionally with bioethics, so I'm like I don't know. But yeah, I I think there's something. Like, you know how your philosophy professor in your first ethics class always talks about your moral intuitions and how they get ruined by your later philosophy classes, and this mm-hmm. is the clearest you'll ever think about ethics for the rest <laughs> of your life?
0: <laughs> yep. There's something there, you know? <laughs> um, okay, so for this next one, uh, which I have uh, cleverly titled uh, "Surveyical Im- Imperatives, uh, this is Americans' Views of Moral Acceptability of 19 Issues. So this is, uh, the question they were asked is... Reg- Regardless of whether or not you think it should be legal for each one, please tell me whether you personally believe that in general it is morally acceptable or morally wrong. So the question is, each of you will give me a number of the percent Americans say that each act is morally acceptable.
1: Can I ask a methodological question? How many of these people were responding from a landline phone?
0: (laughs) (laughs) This is a fair question. It's Gallup. I assume they had that they thought about this. The
1: reason I ask is I just read the Wall Street Journal's abortion issues poll that they released a couple of days ago, and I happened to notice that it said that half of them were on cell phones, and the other half were either via text message or on landlines. And I was like, okay, that just tells me who you're surveying.
0: <laughs> we we have a landline in, in our kitchen. Not that we use it, but an, an old lady lived here before us, and I it like. Bumped a calendar and almost knocked over like a full bottle of wine, and I like tore it out of the wall in rage and put it up in the cupboard. Anyway, okay, so uh, so um, let's let's go through this. Uh, the current score is five for Steven, four for Sam, two for Allison. So let us. Allison will have the last guess. So we'll go Sam guess first, and and, and this will be quick rapid fire. So Sam, Stephen, mm-hmm. Allison. Alright, first one. Birth control. Sam. 60. 87. 90. The answer is 92. Point for Steven. Wow. N- next one, divorce. Again, like probably 65. 94. 70. Uh, the answer is 81. Are we playing price's right rules or like what 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 rules are we doing here? Let's play price's right rules. So we'll give that to Steven just because I don't want to do math between plus and minus. <laughs> All right. Next issue. Sex between an unmarried man and woman. Is the woman married? That's a good question. Methodology. A very good question. <laughs> the methodology is unclear.
3: <laughs> I'm going to say 80. 80? Okay, well, okay. We price should do this right is right rules because then I can screw. Yes. The, okay, so 81. That Like, that's not fair.
1: Did okay. you pick 81?
3: Because now Sam loses no matter what. I mean, we should do closest. We should just do closest in general. Okay, fine. <laughs> or
1: 81. Uh, I'll say 73.
0: Allison is the closest. It is 76%. Dang. All right, point for Allison. Next one. Gambling, Stephen. Or uh, Sam. Uh 75. 90. Say 45. Uh Sam is closest. It's 71. Mm. Wow. Current score: seven for Steven, five for Sam, three for Allison. Next question. Having a baby outside of marriage. 75 again.
3: 60.
0: 70. Exactly correct. 70 is the precise answer. Wow. Well done, Allison. All right. Uh next one. Buying slash wearing clothing made of animal fur. Ooh. Uh
3: Sixty five.
1: Eighty five. Fifty four.
0: I believe the answer is sixty. So I believe Sam wins by one point there. Oh mm-hmm. man. All right. Uh next is let's say uh pornography. Uh sixty
3: percent. Sixty five.
1: I was gonna say sixty eight. I'll stay with that.
0: Sixty eight. Well the answer is forty one percent. So a point for Sam. Mm-hmm. Surprising, I know.
3: Americans are more moral than I thought.
0: All right, well, what it's
1: about also what they're willing to say in a survey, you know?
0: Uh true. Okay. Now, uh what percent were willing to say that polygamy was morally acceptable? Uh 40, 20,
1: 32.
0: Steven is closest, 23. Mm. Wow. All right. Just uh three more questions. First, married men and women having an affair. 35. Wow. 10,
1: 11. Oh. Steven,
0: Steven is closest. It's 9. <laughs>
1: oh. I just got I've I should have gone the other way this. So, look yeah. you, you
2: throw No birth Sam birth it's okay front, and you now live I'm in New saving. York
0: you, you live in New York
2: But here I was saying 60% of people thought birth control is moral and now we're <laughs> in the 90s so like <laughs> Can't win
0: 9 Yep um, all right okay last last few ones here uh, first is uh suicide 20
1: here You go 10 again Say 35
3: Answer
0: is 22% Ooh Sam Sam that catching is. up Sam's only 1 point behind and there happens to be one question, but I'll I'll add one more if if, if Sam gets this one.
3: Wait, seriously? Uh,
0: well, so he has a chance to beat you, obviously. Oh okay. thank <laughs> Doctor Thanks, ass- doctor assisted suicide. Fifty percent.
3: Oh, that's rough.
1: Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I've got a forty-nine percent.
1: <laughs> I- I'm gonna say sixty-six percent just for the two-thirds.
0: Steven. You 50 50 on the wrong side. It's 55%. Sam ties you. We're going oh, to the yes. playoffs.
3: <laughs> Over time.
0: All right. Uh, the final question. Uh, let's geez. say this. This is the final question. Speaking of bioethics, future technology, what percent of Americans think it is morally acceptable to clone a human? I will. No, no. Uh, right. Both of you uh, text me your answers.
1: Can I answer?
0: Yes. Yes, you may. We'll allow it. I say nineteen, and, and and actually, this one is worth ten points. So if Allison gets this, she she, she ties. <laughs> oh, no, no, wow.
1: <laughs> no! I'm just answering for fun.
3: Okay, oh, percent of human or percent of Americans that think cloning a human is morally acceptable? Yes. Where are you pulling this from? Gallup. Don't look it up. <laughs> you could easily find this. I said forty percent.
0: Mr. Sam Scott said fifteen percent. Steven said forty percent. Allison, you said 19%? Uh The answer is 11%. So Sam is Uh our ethics winner. He is the most ethical of all of us, at least as it comes to just doing what the public says at 51%. So He's
1: the most democratically ethical.
0: Yes, precisely. But we all know that democracy is a fickle errand prone to uh, mobs and violence and rage and ranting. Speaking of rants, Stephen, do you have a
3: rant for us? I do have a rant for us, and it's... uh. For once, it's kind of on topic. Um, so, speaking of bioethics and whatnot, the ethics of AI. Uh, so, I recently, classes just started, and I'm in an artificial intelligence class. And the professor, a very nice man to be sure, but was talking about AI. And, like, this sounded like something from a dystopic novel, like him just describing the future. For example, he unironically was talking about and, like, getting excited about the idea that there will soon be machines that we can just hook ourselves into and they will, like, train our brains and educate us. Like, we'll learn things in the course of a year that would normally take us 12 years to learn. And, like, clearly just unaware of some of the basic implications. Also, he was, like, harping on Americans for, like, being super dragging our feet to get automated cars because it might kill people. And him being like, yeah, China is totally chill with, like, just... Getting automatic cars out, out and running—it's like, yeah, because maybe the ethical implications are pretty vexed. And I, I even asked him, like, is there any literature on the ethics of AI? And he's like, yeah, yeah, there's, there's, there's a fair amount, but I mean, like, it's just America's kind of with their hangups with laws and whatnot. And I'm just—it was just one of the most bizarre, like, classic scientists that is just more enamored with how cool something is and hasn't given two seconds of thought to like, some of the really scary implications that could come from this. And so I, I just left thinking, well, wow, AI, I, I'm becoming convinced that this is just a force of pure evil. Like, there there, there there, maybe a few things will come from it. I mean, after all, like, Hitler liked kids, so, like, some incidental good can come, but, like, no, this is just, this is just evil. Like, this, this just is not a force for good. We should not be messing with this. And yet I find myself part of the problem studying AI.
0: It's literally, do you want Terminator? Because that's how you get Terminator. Exactly. Well, well, speaking of hellscapes, Sam.
2: Yeah, uh, short, short rant. What on earth did air travel ever do to the poor city of Chicago to
0: deserve
2: this fate? That is O'Hare International Airport. I don't understand it. Every single time I've flown through this place, I've gotten horribly delayed. And I flew through it about two weeks ago. And of course, we were stuck on the tarmac for three hours after sitting in the airport for four hours and all this, which is which, which in comparison to my previous experiences in the Windy City was not too bad. See probably previous rant about that. And if not, it'll be a great future one. But um, the, the best—it was best exemplified when my wife and I were talking with the gate agent, trying to get some seats moved around so that we can at least sit next to each other through this hell. And we finally, like, made some joke about us getting stranded in Chicago, and he just responded, "Hey, you don't have to live here. We deal with this every single day." I <laughs> don't for this poor guy. I mean, like, I don't know. I've gotten to the point where I feel kind of bad for the place because, like, it's not a bad city. Um, but geez, there is no. Ne- Has a flight ever left O'Hare on time? I don't know. Respond in the comments or something. If you've ever flown out of Chicago on time, I know I haven't. And I've flown through there probably a good dozen times. So anyway, I just, I don't know what's going on with that place. Anyway, that's my rant. There you go.
0: All right. Well, I may be no fan of the Windy City, but I am a fan of the Windy Season. So my rant. Summer is dead and we have killed him. Wither is summer. All of us are his murderers. How did we do it? How could we drink up the summer ales? Who gave us enough aloe to heal our summer sunburns? But summer is dead and the leaves will decompose. How shall we comfort ourselves? I shall tell you. We have gathered the cinnamon pancake mix, the harvest tea and the pumpkin rooibos. We have lit the apple spice and vanilla pumpkin candles and spoken the sacred words. Are the leaves changing? I have taken the vest from the closet, ripped plastic from the peacoat, and donned my new waterproof boots. And I have drunk the blood of the fall, the glorious PSL, and know that fall lives. All that remains is for the goddamn weather to comply and get below 60 degrees already. It's September 4th, and high time for scarves. Let all nature know and obey. Summer is dead, and we have killed him.
3: I think this was, uh, (laughs) this this is reminiscent of a previous rant.
0: (laughs) September sixteenth, twenty twenty one, but I modified it so it was much closer to the uh, to the original Nietzsche. God is dead. Man,
3: yeah, that, that was good. That was a nice homage. Very good. Yes. Yeah, you know, it, today I I thought like it's it was been moving towards
2: fall in the city all all week. It's been getting cooler and cooler. And it's like I walked out this morning and I got hit with like a little bit of a brisk, you know, breeze. Went to church. Left church. Eighty degrees, and it feels like an armpit outside. And I'm just like, can we not win? Anyway. I caught my, my
0: first whiff of everyone. fall the other day. All right. Well, uh, Allison, do you have a uh, rant for us this evening?
1: I do, but it's premised on the Rings of Power TV show, which I don't know if your listeners have all seen yet. That's the thing that's currently peeving me, though. So Just go for
3: it. Well, spoil okay, away. we don't so, care about watching There's, it. there's we, nothing we to spoil that if... requires quality. <laughs>
1: That's a fair point. That's actually the point of the rant. But I do want to preface it by saying if you want to form your own opinion, uh, hopefully we didn't just poison you. And you should watch the show first. But after you watch the show, you should come and listen to me say that this is just beyond not talking. And to be fair, I thought it was going to be something different originally when they first started this, the prologue and it was oh it's Galadriel and her brother and so I thought it was going to be the Silmarillion and then she just skipped over all of that in like two seconds of narration and then I was like oh okay it's not going to be this well what are they going to talk about and then I realized after looking it up that Amazon doesn't have the rights to the Silmarillion or they didn't at the time of filming or something I don't really know where it is but so then I thought okay okay so they're going to do something in the second age got it all right I didn't look up the show before watching it I just heard oh it's the new Tolkien show but this is this could not in any way approximate a show about the Second Age because Gladriel is a completely different person. It's she's almost like Tauriel, the elf that they invented for the Hobbit, except just like given a little bit more rank and transported back in time to lead a whole elven army or something. I mean, and then go on her own like solipsistic quest for, I don't know, revenge. <laughs> it's, she just is not, even my mom who was watching it with me and who has a passing familiarity with Lord of the Rings. She's seen the extended editions a few times and I think she re- might've read the books once as a kid. She's over there making dinner. I th- She says that, yes, she did. <laughs> she, uh, she could tell, she said, this doesn't really seem like the Galadriel of the old movies. Wasn't she supposed to be more regal? And I, I was telling her, I don't even think she's ever portrayed carrying a sword. Like the type of power that she has is awe inspiring and has nothing to do with killing a troll by stabbing it through the forehead or pushing everyone with her to go to the ends of the earth to find something. That just wasn't also she was married and wasn't having this like quasi weird, maybe slightly flirtatious relationship with the person who's supposed to be her son in law in the so <laughs> So, (laughs) like her her daughter's nowhere to be found her husband's nowhere to be found like i just don't her whole relationship with her brother is apparently motivating this entire quest of hers but there there doesn't seem to be any actual grounding in any of her relationships like with her parents or i mean she has more than one brother or all of the relationships just seemed completely messed up and i was i mean i was disappointed with the hobbit having the scene of her banishing sauron which i suspect they're going to Bring back again, because maybe that's just Galadriel's doom, in the cinematic universe of Middle Earth is she perpetually is banishing Sauron from places. I don't know, but um, but yeah, it's it was very it was sad because I really like the character of Galadriel, and I like seeing these female characters get some more airtime and more traditionally male stories that I also really like. Like I do think that's one of the weaknesses of Lord of the Rings that you only get to see pretty much Eowyn as like someone who takes center stage in the books. And I'm, i I like the other characters too, but it's it's nice to see a girl. But it's just like why? Like I would have been better if they had just put Galadriel as kind of a side, her normal self as a side character, and just invented a different elf, just like they did with Tauriel. That was less. That made me less angry <laughs> as a fan of Lord of the Rings. Sorry, I'm probably going on way too much about this. <laughs> I I was I was very sad because it did not really feel. And also the. Nothing that she said had any of the linguistic poetic nature of her dialogue that comes from the books, and so then it didn't really feel all that real in that way either. Not that I can expect everyone to be Tolkien, but I guess if you put his name on the show, I expected it. I expected more of it.
0: I just, I, I, I would just love to hear you like going line by line and critiquing her like Elvish pronunciation or something. It's like this is clearly. <laughs> Lower middle
1: elf. This, this era is high elf only, with perhaps high. I'm not much of a nerd. I don't know that much. I'm sure I, I would. I would watch a YouTube video where someone did that. I'm that. I'm that into it, but I couldn't provide such critique myself.
3: That's the actual spin-off podcast that we need to do. It's just <laughs> yeah, going line exactly. by line.
1: It's just
0: a rage podcast about the Lord of the Rings show. Uh, there will be plenty <laughs> okay, of those so, that spin off. So if asking.
1: you. If you take it as a generic fantasy show, I think it might actually be interesting. And it could also, I think it could build up to an interesting, you know, with Sauron tricking them into forging the rings and that that whole plot line could be interesting. But I just wasn't very impressed with the first couple episodes. And the fact that the characters weren't what I thought they should be leaves me sort of disappointed and not really expecting very much more.
0: All right. Well, speaking of not expecting much more uh we have to wrap up this podcast so for everyone here at the problem with reading podcast i'm brevin Uh, i'm steven i'm sam and i'm allison and get out there and be ethical
3: and don't watch the floor of the rings movie unless you want to be disappointed some of us like pain though Mm, true theology of suffering
1: <laughs> this is our penance <laughs> and
0: and that's the outro clip right there <laughs> perfect